0: So a few months ago I had Uh, the joy of going to India with some folks from Ethos. And we went to work with some of our church plants over in kind of the most northeastern corner of India, sort of in and around the Kolkata area. It was an amazing experience. Next time we send a team uh, from Ethos to India, you need to get on that trip. But we went and we spent about two weeks just seeing what God was doing among our churches there in and around Kolkata. And so there was this kind of one point in the trip, we were about halfway through our journey, we were getting ready to take a two-hour bus ride over to another part of the country where we're gonna spend the last ten days together and so Pius who is our lead church planter in India and his partner in crime a woman named Jay Sheree, they're just two of the most amazing people I've ever been around and they knew we had a few hours to spare before we were going to catch a bus. And so they took us in to the marketplaces of Kolkata to buy some cheap souvenirs for our friends and families and to say, hey, thank you for sending us away for two, two weeks. And, you know, here's some cheap earrings for you. And so we went in to the marketplace of Kolkata. And if you've never been into a third world marketplace, I'll just kind of describe it for you. It is like the the chaos of the New York Stock Exchange times 10. I mean, There are people everywhere. There are sights and there are sounds, and some of those sights and sounds are beautiful, and some of those sights and sounds are overwhelming, because as soon as you walk in, they look at a guy like me and they go, that guy's a tourist, that guy's an idiot, we'll take his money, and all of a sudden, when you walk into those marketplaces, everyone starts crowding around you because they want to get your attention so they can get your money. So we walk in to this marketplace, and we'd been in there for about 30 seconds, and I got separated from the group because I'm a moron, and so I'm away from the group, and, I find myself standing there at this little kiosk. A kiosk is kind of too fancy of a word. It's more like a, just a little hut that is selling designer sunglasses and I needed some sunglasses. And so and I'm there at this little kiosk to buy sunglasses. And what you may not know about me if you're not my friend is I'm colorblind. And so that means anytime I buy something without the assistance of my wife, Sydney, I normally make a mistake in the color that I choose. So I'm there at this kiosk getting ready to buy these designer sunglasses and I think I'm getting a good deal because I don't understand the exchange rate. I pay way too much money for these sunglasses and I put them on and I find the group. I walk back to the group and as soon as I walk up, Pius just starts laughing. Now, Uh, You have to understand their culture. That that is not the way they operate. He is like the most respectful dude I know in the world, but he he looks at me and he's just laughing and he says, oh, Brother Dave. I'm not even gonna do his accent. He says, oh, Brother Dave. He says, not only did you buy counterfeit sunglasses, but you bought counterfeit women's sunglasses and I was wearing these neon purple women designer counterfeit sunglasses, and he felt so sorry for me. He said, hey, for the rest of the day, I want you to stick with me. Like when we, go, when we go through the shops, he said, I'll walk with you, I'll show you the way, I'll point out that which you should buy, that which you shouldn't. And, and So we're walking through this crowded marketplace, and as we go through the streets, he says, hey, don't buy from them, they're, they're counterfeiters. Hey, don't buy from her, she's a master counterfeiter. And it was this amazing experience to have someone who knew me and who loved me, whom I trusted, to walk me through the chaos of that culture and to point out that which would let me down. If you've ever seen a counterfeit, isn't it true that they always look good from a distance? And sometimes they even feel good up close, but then you spend your hard-earned money and you give your hard-earned time and they let you down. And I was thinking about that this week as I was talking to P.S., he and I Skyped from time to time and he was reminding me of what an idiot I am and how fun it was to walk through the markets with me. And we were sitting there talking back and forth and I was reminded of how great it is to have someone who is wiser and smarter and more compassionate with you in the midst of the chaos so you can avoid that which is counterfeit. And there's been a lot of things that have been going on through the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying this Gospel for several months together, and I kept thinking of that picture from Kolkata because so often that's what the Gospel of Mark feels like, It's Jesus walking with his disciples and his friends through the, the crowded and complex reality of their culture, and Jesus, like a great big brother, like a good God, because he loves us, is saying, watch out for the counterfeits. And here's the, the interesting thing about Mark chapter 11, as we come to Mark chapter 11, is Jesus is no longer gonna draw attention to the counterfeit realities of the culture. Jesus is gonna start pointing out the counterfeit realities of the church. And as you come to Mark chapter 11, Jesus has seven days left before he's crucified. And Jesus is gonna turn his eyes not towards the things in the world that are prone to let us down, but he's gonna turn his eyes to the things in our religious constructs that are prone to let us down. And I won't make you raise your hand, but if you have ever been wounded by the church, if you have ever been wounded by this church, if you have ever been wounded by a Christian, if you have ever been wounded by this Christian, Mark chapter 11 is a picture of Jesus' zeal to make sure that you are no longer duped by the counterfeit intimacy that religion promises. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of a religious experience that seemed to be touching everyone else's heart but yours? Have you ever found yourself in a place just going, man, it is hard to connect with God? Have you ever had someone like me, or maybe it was me, stand up and make you a promise about God that God didn't seem to fulfill? And see, Mark chapter 11 is not a picture of Jesus's anger. Mark chapter 11 is a picture of Jesus' love and this desire to make sure that you don't keep settling for the counterfeit intimacy that religion promises. And so we're gonna pick up in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The story that takes place right before this, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. He's riding on a donkey. It is this uh, amazing kind of paradoxical picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus is getting ready to come to do. Here Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of Mark chapter 11 and he is received with the joy of a king. And yet he comes in riding on the vehicle of a poor person. Here Jesus is clothed in his majesty, but he enters in meekness. Here Jesus is receiving the honor of their worship, and yet he's riding in on the humility of a donkey. And so he comes in the beginning of Mark chapter 11, and it says uh, it's nighttime, and he sees the temple there, which was the, the heart of the religious system during the days of Jesus. And so he looks around the temple and then he goes out to Bethany, which would have been one of the suburbs of Jerusalem. It would be like Jesus coming into Nashville and scoping out ethos and then going out and staying in Brentwood for the evening. And this is where the story picks up. Mark chapter 11, we're gonna start in verse 12. It says, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, that's the suburbs, Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Now, I wanna pause here for a second because this is a really kind of weird story that we're getting ready to read, I wanna make sure you understand it. Throughout the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, one of the primary metaphors that he would use to describe the religious culture of his day was the fig tree. And so Jesus was an amazing teacher, Jesus loved to teach with stories, with analogies and with metaphors. And one of those metaphors that he would use over and over and over to describe the religious world was this image of a fig tree. And so I just want you to to pause with me for a second. Do you think it's a coincidence that as Jesus is getting ready to come in and deal with the religious culture, that he stops at a tree that he has used over and over and over to describe the religious culture. This is not an accident. So a fig tree was a tree that travelers loved because fig trees would bear fruit in two different times of the year. And so in the spring, this story is taking place in the spring during the Passover, probably March or April during the spring. As soon as a fig tree would have leaves on it, it would bear these little kind of miniature fruits that travelers loved because in a world before fast food, in many marts, when you were traveling, You needed to find food along the way if you're gonna eat, right? And so uh, travelers love these fig trees because they could stop and they could take these miniature pieces of fruit. They could put them in their purses or their pockets or their bags. They could eat them on the journey. This is like a cosmic snack for a divine road trip. You know, God has made these fig trees. They would enjoy the fruit. And so if you saw a fig tree with leaves on it in the spring, you knew it should have small fruit. Later in the year, late summer, early fall, would be the season for figs when they would bear big fruit, okay? And so it says that Jesus sees this tree in a distance. He sees the leaves on the tree and he knows in his mind that if this tree is healthy, if this tree is alive, it will have some small pieces of fruit on it. And it says that Jesus gets to the tree and he finds nothing but leaves. It keeps going, look at this. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And this is where the story seems weird, if you don't understand that background. It says, and then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from this tree again. And his disciples heard him say it. Isn't this kind of a crazy moment, like when you don't understand the background? It seems like here is Jesus, the fullness of God, walking through earth. He finds a tree, and he gets mad because there's no fruit, and he curses it. But it's so much more than this. And all along the journey, Jesus is constantly using physical moments to declare spiritual truths in reality. And the disciples heard him say that as they were getting ready to enter the temple. And here's what I want you to notice. Jesus is not just making an assessment of this tree. Jesus is making an assessment of the temple that he's getting ready to walk into because the temple itself was the culmination of these people's religious experience. And what Jesus is saying is from a distance, the religion of the day looks fruitful and good and life-giving. There are leaves on the tree, but when I got closer, there's no fruit to enjoy. There's no grace, there's no mercy, there's no love, there's no kindness, and Jesus looks at the tree, and he's not just making a statement about the tree, he's making a promise about what's getting ready to happen in the context of the religious system. He says, I'm telling you the truth, no one is ever gonna eat fruit from this religious system again. And Jesus curses the tree. The disciples hear this. I love that Mark says they heard him say it. You imagine things probably got weird. They're like, oh, that was weird. That was awkward. Jesus is mad. And he walks into the temple. And I I want you to just let your mind go here. I want you to imagine this. Look at verse 15. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jerusalem was the heart of the religious system during the days of Jesus. Jesus entered the temple. And so if Jerusalem was the heart of the religious system, at the heart of the religious system was this temple. And it says, he entered the temple courts, or some of your Bibles say the outer courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned tables of money changers and the benches of those that were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts, as, and he taught them. Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? So then the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the pastors of their day heard Jesus and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So I want you to picture this scene. Jesus has just had this unusual conversation with a fig tree that represents the religious system of the day. He says, from the outside, you look good. On the inside, there's nothing happening. And then he walks into the temple and begins to live out in front of his disciple, the very conversation he had just had around the tree. If you could have gone into the temple during the days of Jesus, don't imagine a church building. Don't picture a church building. Uh, I, I want you to picture more of an outdoor mall, an outdoor shopping center. You would walk into these outer courts and Mark is very clear that this is where Jesus entered into. He entered into the outer courts and there was this place around the temple, around the building itself, these outer courts where those who did not grow up in a religious home, those who did not grow up knowing God, the outer courts were the place where they came to found the mercy and the grace of God. The outer courts were the place, it was the place where outsiders would become insiders. The outer courts were the place where the burden of sin was to be lifted so you could experience the blessing of salvation. The outer courts were the place for those who didn't feel like they belonged. And so Jesus walks into the outer courts and instead of finding it to be a place of intimacy and grace and love and hope for the outsiders, he finds it's become this Calcutta marketplace. The streets are packed, Vendors are trying to get the attention of the outsiders. And instead of blessing them, they've become a great burden upon the very people that are coming to find the grace of God. There's a first century historian, a guy named Josephus, you can look this up. He recorded that one time during the first century, during the week of Passover, when this story is taking place, that there were more than 255,000 lambs sold, purchased, and sacrificed in the temple over the course of one week. Can you imagine the chaos of these temple courts? Can you imagine the smell and the sight and the sound of 255,000 animals along with the people that are selling and sacrificing those animals? Unbelievable chaos and Jesus shows up and instead of discovering his house as being a house of grace and mercy and love and intimacy, he finds that his house has become a place where the outsiders don't belong. And Jesus, in his zeal for the outsiders, won't leave it like that. He flips over the tables. He drives out uh, the money changers. I think sometimes we paint this picture of Jesus that is this weak, soft, Mr. Rogers version of Jesus. But this picture of Jesus that you hear in Mark chapter 11 is pretty amazing. Can you imagine him walking through the scene of these uh, of these temple courts, making room for those who did not yet know the goodness of God. Now, I want to pause here for just a second before we dive deeper into this story. I want to give you just a little bit of background because I think without the background of what's going on here. It, it, the the heart of jesus isn't seen fully and so if you grew up in church i want to reference some stories that you probably know quite well some of you didn't grow up in church and and these stories may be weird and you can ask us about these stories we'd love to study these and read these with you but i want to try to give you a glimpse of the whole bible in about three minutes okay one of the most confusing books in the world i want to try to make simple for you so you understand what's happening here mark chapter 11. so the beginning of the bible tells us that god from a place of perfect intimacy between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God in his intimacy and in his love created all things, and those things that he created were very, very good. It says that in the middle of the creation was a garden, and in the middle of the garden were Adam and Eve, the first man, the first woman, and the garden was a spectacular place for a lot of reasons, amazing weather, amazing food, it was your own petting zoo. The animals were there. Adam and Eve got to name the animals. Just how cool you know, would that have been? It was like this kind of weird nudist colony. We're not gonna get into that, but it says that they didn't own a stitch of clothing in the Garden of Eden, and apparently that was a good thing. Let's just take God's word for it, but here they were in the Garden of Eden, and there's a lot of things that made the Garden of Eden good, but I want you to hear this very clearly. What made the Garden good was God, and it was in the Garden that they had perfect intimacy with God. They could see him, they could talk to him. It says that in the cool of the evening, they go and walk to the Lord. Can you imagine how amazing it would have been to have had perfect unrestrained intimacy with God? This is the way that Lord, the Lord made it. And so the garden was this picture of intimacy. If you keep reading in the Bible, you get like one page into chapter three. And all of a sudden the enemy who is the great counterfeiter, he's the one there in the marketplace counterfeiting the pleasures of God to deceive human beings. The enemy is there in the garden and he offers Adam and Eve something that is fundamentally impossible. He says, Adam and Eve, you can have independence of God and intimacy with God, would you like that? And Adam and Eve choose what so many of us are still striving for. And that is we wanna be totally independent of needing God and yet we wanna have perfect intimacy with God. And so if you know the story, they choose independence and what they lose is intimacy. Sin comes in and disrupts the intimacy of the garden. These unholy people now can no longer see and understand and communicate with the holiness of God. And so they have to leave the garden and there's this one weird little story. I wanted to kind of clue you in on this. I've read it my whole life and never understood it. There's this one weird little moment. It says they're leaving the garden and an angel with a flaming sword was standing there at the end of, edge of the garden, protecting the people from the garden. And I've read that story my whole life, and I go, that that is so weird. Like, what is that about? I just read past it and keep going. But I want you to to understand what's going on here at the beginning of the scriptures. The garden was the place of intimacy. Sin disrupted that intimacy. And Adam and Eve understood that if the garden was the place of unrestrained intimacy, in order to get back into the garden, they would have to go past the sword. And to go past the sword meant that there would be blood. And they began understanding very early on that for unholy people to have intimacy with a holy God, there would be blood. Now for us in our modern world, it doesn't make any sense. In our modern minds, this is like the weirdest story ever. The God's an amazing God. And he immediately started pursuing these unholy people and he gave them a system of being reminded that they were both unholy but that they were welcomed into the presence of his holiness, and the the system that he gave them was this sacrificial system, and so they would bring an animal, and they would sacrifice this animal, and as this animal died, it was literally a reminder to them that in order for them to find the intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden, someone had to pass by the sword, and when you pass by the sword, there would be blood. Does that make sense? And so for thousands of years, the people of God were operating like this, we're unholy, God is holy, but we can know him and we can know him because someone will go past the sword. And the temple would become the place in which unholy people would encounter the grace and the love and the holiness of God as they would bring their sacrifices. The, holy, the, the, the temple was more than a place. The temple was the literal intersection of God's presence and God's forgiveness for unfaithful human beings. The temple was the place where guys like me could find the grace and the mercy of God. And Jesus shows up here in Mark chapter 11 and he finds this system that had been designed to remind them that God was gracious and good and loving and wonderfully holy. And instead of this system reminding them of just how close God was, they would leave the temple being reminded of just how far away they felt. And I go, have you ever felt this before? Have you ever walked into one of our modern temples and left just going, I don't know if God is good. Or maybe he's good, but he certainly doesn't love someone like me. Have you ever left a place like this, feeling more broken than you did when you came? The zeal of Jesus in Mark chapter 11 is not just against dead religion. It's against all the casualties of dead religion throughout the ages. People that have brought their sacrifice and left wondering if God was still good. And Jesus walks in and he begins overturning the tables. He begins driving out the animals. He begins driving out the money changers. And I want you to notice this. This is seven days before Jesus will die on a cross. Jesus here is cleansing the temple. He is making room, not because he is just rebuking that system, but because he knows that he himself will walk in, he will become the lamb, he will become the sacrifice, and he himself will become the new temple upon which all sinful people can find the goodness of God. And Jesus clears it out and he's making a statement that there is room in the house of God for all the nations, not because of who you are and not because of what you've done, but because of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Praise God. And the reason you came in this morning without a sacrifice, the reason you came in this morning just as you are, the reason you came in this morning with no fear of a holy God, knowing that you could sing to him and talk to him and pray to him is because Jesus Christ, the son of God loves you enough to point out the counterfeit intimacy of your religious system so that you can know the heart and the grace and the love of your amazing father. And Jesus, as he is flipping over the tables, as he is cleaning out the animals, he is making a statement that he has not come to modify their religious behavior. Jesus has come to crucify their religious behavior. And I think a lot of us are comfortable with the idea that Jesus needed to die for our sin, but very few of us are comfortable with the idea that Jesus needed to die for our religion. Because so many of us have been inoculated from intimacy with God by the counterfeit intimacy that comes from man-made religion. And I think about my oldest son, Mike, we took him to get his vaccines for kindergarten. He starts tomorrow. I'm weeping inside my heart right now. It's been a hard moment for us as a family, but um, going off to kindergarten tomorrow, he had to get his vaccines. And if you know the way that vaccines work, they, uh, vaccines, they give you just enough of the disease so your body can build an immunity against the disease. Does that make sense? And what Jesus discovered as he walked into those temple courts is that those people had found just enough of God to miss God. They knew just enough about God to miss God. They had heard just enough about God to miss God. Their sacrificial system had become the vaccines against intimacy. Their their sacrificial system had inoculated them against the intimacy and the ways of God. And Jesus says, no more, no more, no more. He turns the tables over. He pushes the animals out. He says, listen, I'm gonna come in and I will become the new temple. I will become the new lamb. And all human beings can find God, not because they've come to a place, but because they've come to a person. Do you remember John chapter two, verse 19? Jesus is standing in this very temple and he says, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And all of the people in the temple go, whoa, you are crazy. It took us 40 years to build this temple. You're gonna build it in three days? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about my body. Because no longer will people come to a place in order to experience both the presence and the penance, the the presence and the forgiveness of God, he says, you won't come to a place anymore, you'll come to a person and that person is me. Or John chapter one, Jesus is walking by and John the Baptist falls on his knees and goes, oh, behold the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Behold the sacrifice above all sacrifices. Behold the one who will make all things new. Praise God that Jesus loves us enough to deal with our religion. And he walks in and he begins to clear the temple. And he says, no longer, no longer will I let you settle for the counterfeit intimacy of religion. I'd encourage you go home today, read Hebrews chapter nine, all the stuff that I've been talking about this morning in light of Mark chapter 11. I stole it straight from the Bible, so I think it's okay. But I, I stole it out of Hebrews chapter nine where the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews explains this. He starts at the beginning. I'm just gonna quote some passages of scripture for you out of Hebrews chapter nine. But he says, under the first covenant, there were rules and regulations for worship and there was an earthly temple. And each year, the high priest once a year would enter into the temple, into the most holy of holies, and he would come with an offering of blood, both for his sins and the sins of the people. And then it's like the writer of Hebrews starts turning up the heat. You can imagine, he just gets a smile on his face. He's like, but then it gets good. He says, but then Christ Jesus came. And unlike the high priest that entered into the temple year after year after year, offering sacrifices that only cleansed you outwardly but never dealt with your conscience inwardly, he says, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, entered into a temple that was not created by human hands. He entered into a temple that was prepared by God himself and he didn't keep entering in over and over and over, dying over and over and over. He entered once and for all And I love this in Hebrews chapter nine, just as every man and woman will stand before God, after they die once, they will be judged once. He says, Jesus Christ has stood before his father one time and has died for all, so that in his one death, many could live and many could find the joy of God. I love this picture in Mark chapter 11. Jesus says, I haven't come to modify your religious behavior. I've come to crucify it because even you can get a glimpse. Even you can have a taste of what life was like in the garden. And I was thinking about this all week long. This story has just been messing me up and I've been going, God, thank you for loving us enough to clear their temple. Thank you for loving us enough to do whatever it takes so that we can find real intimacy with the Father. But the more I thought about what Jesus was doing in their temple, the Holy Spirit kept reminding me what it is that Jesus is trying to do in our temple. Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19? It says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that your body is the temple of God? And some of you heard that verse growing up and it was the verse that your parents used to tell you to quit smoking. You know, Maybe it means that, but it's, it's way more than that. It's bigger than that. He says, don't you know that the temple is no longer a place? And the temple is no longer just a person of Jesus. The temple is now a people. And you're the people. Or 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, says that Jesus is taking you, the spiritual stones, and he is building you into a spiritual house where the presence of God can dwell. That the temple is no longer just a place or just a person, it's a People. That when non-believers, which some of you are, come into this place amongst these people, they begin to encounter the grace and the love and the mercy and the forgiveness of God here. Why? Not because we're so nice and not because we're so open-minded, but because Jesus Christ died to clear this temple. And I just wanna publicly repent of some things. If you have ever been wounded by a follower of Jesus that calls this place home, please forgive us. If you have ever been wounded by me, please forgive me. What you discover in Mark chapter 11 is that the people, who crowd up the temple courts are not always good representatives of the one to whom the temple points, but grace be to God that Jesus in his zeal for you and Jesus in his zeal for me keeps coming in, keeps cleaning the house so that you can find God I go, what do we do with this this morning? I go, every week we take communion and we stand up and we sing songs. And that moment of worship is us standing here understanding that we get to come come to Jesus just as we are. You come to Jesus just as you are with all your sin. I don't care if you've been married 50 times. I don't care if you've let your family down. I don't care if you are broken sexually. I don't care if you are a liar, a, chief, a cheat. I don't care if you are an adulterer. I don't care if you are a prideful religious zealot who thinks you have it all together. I don't care what your sin is, what your story is. We get to stand in a moment. We get to worship in a moment. We get to take communion in a moment. Why? because Jesus the lamb has entered the new temple, the sacrifice to end all sacrifice, and we get to stand and go, man, we can know God, we can come as we are. But I wanna challenge you, don't stop at just coming as you are. It's not enough to come as you are. Come as you are and be cleansed by the lamb of God. Be changed by Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. No longer do we stand here in our own goodness and in our own righteousness, in our own strength. We stand here knowing whether you are the preacher or whether you're sitting in the seat that you can only stand here in confidence because God is good and real and Jesus has died for our sins. Oh, wow. So what do we do? We worship our faces (laughs) off. We sing our hearts out. We cry in repentance. We laugh in joy. We pray for the heartbroken. We encourage the outsider. And every time God cleanses our temple, we thank him for being amazing. And then we break the bread and we take the cup and we're reminded that only his sacrifice was good enough to bring us in. Okay, so in a a minute, we're gonna stand up as the new temple, the people of God, May we not stand up, people of the new temple, living with the mindset of the old temple. As you walk to communion, don't you dare walk there thinking that your performance and your righteousness has earned you the ability to go to the table. As you walk to the table, you go, man, we are walking to the table because Jesus has cleansed the temple. Praise God. Let's pray and we'll take communion.